bodily autonomy arguments in pro-life conversations are coming up more and more often. And so it's about time that we dedicate a whole episode to it. And today I got an absolute banger with Emily Albrecht from Equal Rights Institute. Stay tuned. Hi, folks. My name is Cam. I'm the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion so that together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. Um, thanks for, for being along for the ride. Apologies for um, regular guests, uh, regular um, audience members um, for being a little bit tardy in some of the episodes coming out of late. It's been a wild spring getting ready, not only for the internship, but also a ton of other stuff on the go at CCBR. Um, I got way ahead on recordings and then we used up all of the recordings that I had um, and then um, last week we didn't end up or two weeks ago now we didn't end up even having a recording we're back on top now we'll have um, a ton of cool content coming down the the tube with Blaze Elaine Jonathan Van Mara and a couple solo episodes with myself talking through things um, but today we're going to talk about bodily autonomy arguments my body my choice uh, when I'm giving apologetics workshops for any justification for abortion, whether it's bodily autonomy, whether it's sexual assault, whether it's um, anything about um, finances or overpopulation or anything like that, the guidance I'm going to offer is to avoid two things, refuting and resolving. What do I mean by that? Refuting is rejecting the, the justification out of hand by basically calling it a dumb argument of like, that's so ridiculous. Nobody, um, that problem doesn't actually exist. Resolving says, you know what, let's fix the problem without identifying the fact that it is a problem. And both of them are problematic in pro-life conversations um, because by re uh, refuting it, rejecting it out of hand, calling it a dumb idea, um, that might be something really near and dear to their heart. And that might really turn them off and end the conversation. And when the conversations don't happen, preborn children lose out because we need to win people through our pro-life outreach. On the flip side, we can't just fix all of the problems, not just because there might be a problem that we can't fix with our finances um, and with other support. But rather because if we don't take abortion off the table, in principle, if we do not remove this as a viable option for navigating challenging pregnancies, then it's going to be impossible for us to make pregnancy easier than how easy abortion is perceived to be. And so we can't just cut straight to the, the gig of like, you know what, if, if you think that abortion should be allowed when the mother's living in poverty, how big of a check do you need me to write? Abortion is no longer necessary. We need to make abortion unthinkable. All that to say, I'm thrilled to be able to dive into this really cool conversation with Emily Albrecht, um, the, the Director of um, Education and Outreach with Equal Rights Institute. Many of you um, know and love Josh Brom, one of my great friends and colleagues in the pro-life movement, the Executive Director and Founder of Equal Rights Institute. Um, we're going to get into Emily's story as to how she finds herself in this role after being involved with um, her campus pro-life group. I'm really excited for this conversation to be able to dedicate a lot of time towards bodily autonomy arguments and how to navigate them. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Emily Albrecht, Director of Education and Outreach with Equal Rights Institute. All right, Emily, thanks so much for taking the time to join the show. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me, Cam. It's my pleasure to be here today. This is great. I chatting off air. I think that our our mutual friend and colleague in the movement, Josh, has talked 
about each other an awful lot. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. And um, everything that I've seen from you online, I, I'm thrilled that you're able to join. So I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into a conversation about bodily autonomy, because obviously it, it's something that's not only always been pertinent in the abortion conversation, but I feel like in an even greater way, it, it's becoming more and more um, common, I guess. And we can dive into that in, in a moment or two here. But I want to start by kind of talking about your origin story, I guess. When I when I talk to people like Scott Klusendorf, they often talk about how like nobody just randomly applies to work in the pro-life movement, but rather there's a bit of a summoning, bit of a journey that comes into it. I'm curious, what did that journey look like for you to become the director of education at ERI? What did that look like? I got started doing pro-life work my freshman year of college, mostly, if I'm being completely honest, out of a desperate desire to have friends. Uh, so I went to St. Olaf College, which is this very liberal, uh, actually Lutheran institution in Minnesota. And when I got there, I found myself in a very, very hostile campus towards pro-life people. Uh, just to paint a picture for you, it was the fall of 2016, and our local pregnancy center was hosting their annual fundraising banquet. And they actually decided to do that on the St. Olaf campus. Because um, you can do that. You can like rent a ballroom on a college campus, right? And have an event there. And so that's what they did. And basically, when the students of St. Olaf found out that this is what was happening, they managed to organize a, an insane number of students to line the hallways of the entire student union with signs screaming at the, I mean, let's face it, mostly elderly members of the community that had come to support free resources for pregnant and parenting people. Like that's what I walked into. And so I kept my mouth shut. I did not want to tell anyone that I was pro-life. And I just like head down, went on with my day until the second semester of my first year when my like one strong pro-life friend literally dragged me kicking and screaming to my very first pro-life club meeting. She wanted to go and I wanted her to be friends with me. And so I went. <laughs> and when I showed up to that meeting, uh, we had just single-handedly tripled the size of the club. Because up until that point, it was being single-handedly run by one senior girl who was doing her best. And so second semester, we had three. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, everything that we tried to do as a club failed epically. I mean, that spring was a complete disaster. We had vandalisms left and right, and we got to the end of that year very discouraged. Senior girl graduated, and then suddenly my, my friend Meredith and I found ourselves running the pro-life club by default <laughs> because there was no one else. And uh, it was that summer, through all of our discouragement, that we started to try to kind of figure out what we could do differently how we could really try to even make a difference in a small way on our campus. Because it felt like everything we had done up to that point had just been completely shot down and it, there was just no point almost. So it was kind of a question of like, do we even continue this? Or is there anything that we can do? Is it possible to make a difference? And one day in the middle of July, between that first and second year of college, is the day that I quite literally got the email that changed my life. Uh, it was actually an email from that local pregnancy center. Uh, they had found out that we were the ones now running the pro-life club. And they emailed us and they said, hey, we just discovered that there's this national pro-life organization called Equal Rights Institute that's dedicated to helping pro-life people actually reach pro-choice people. And I was like, 
wow, do I need that? (laughs) And so I took my tiny little club through ERI's Equipped for Life course, which is our online pro-life apologetics training course. And we decided, "Let's, let's give this a try. Like this might actually work. If nothing else, nothing else has worked. So what if we actually started trying to do outreach on our campus? Like it's worth a shot. So we started the fall of my second year to do ERI style outreaches on campus. We had never received any training directly from Equal Rights Institute people. It was just, we had taken their course. We were inspired. We were like, let's give this a shot. And we did tabling outreach almost weekly for the next three years of my college experience. And by the time we got to my last year, everything about my campus had changed dramatically. We, first of all, now had a giant pro-life club because there had always been pro-lifers on my campus, but like me, they were terrified of saying anything. And so once we got a community together for them and we were actually doing activism and it was being effective, pro-life students just came out of the woodwork to join the club. But even more importantly than that to me is I saw a complete culture shift in how students on our campus viewed our club. I mean, we had students who had changed their minds about abortion and become pro-life. And even more than that, we had countless students who now respected the pro-life position for the very first time. Vandalism for our club completely ended. We had hundreds of pro-choice students thanking us for being out there doing outreach and exposing them to a position that they had never heard before. And we realized that doing outreach was probably the single most effective thing that a group of young pro-life people can do to expose pro-choice people to a position that they have probably never given any thought to before. And now they learn to respect it and understand it. And so it was through that process that we started to become a little bit in the pro-life movement in the United States famous for our outreaches. Um, Like people started to hear that there was this crazy thing happening at St. Olaf and it got back to Equal Rights Institute. And Josh, our our mutual friend now, um, heard about what was happening. And he came out to St. Olaf to visit us. He did a speech on our campus and he did an outreach with us. He got to meet all of our clubs. He helped train some of my new members. And it was through that that we started to build a personal relationship with Josh so that when there was an opening on the ERI staff, it was a really natural fit for me to start working for them. So I actually started working for ERI this summer between my uh, third and fourth year of college. I worked for them all through my last year, and then I just transitioned to full-time work as soon as I graduated. Gotcha. I love it. I love it. And and I feel like that is the journey. Or I mean, everyone has a different journey, but I think it's so cool that... Uh, we, we all have this somewhat rocky journey into the pro-life movement because I feel like a lot of the time, and, and I'm curious if, if you get the same response, when, when you go and give talks, and, and I know that you're doing very high-profile banquets and whatnot for right-to-life dinners and whatnot, I feel like sometimes there's this air of like, you are somehow different. You're somehow like, like this was a superhero born among us who's just like always been an absolute rock star. And like this person in like elementary was debating their teacher on pro-life, pro-choice stuff and just this this incredible, advocate for life the entire time and sure there's some people out there like that i i have colleagues that were like super active in pro-life stuff when they're in middle school power to them i i just find it so interesting that that not everyone has that origin story there's a lot of people like you and i who have like a bit of that kicking and screaming vibe into the pro-life movement and then here we are helping other people kick and scream into the pro-life movement i guess (laughs) 
Exactly. Right. I did not come in wanting to do this work. I never, ever would have thought in a million years that I was going to do this. I wanted to be a high school choir teacher. That was my life path. That's what I majored in in college. I was a vocal music education major. And I also then spent the first little bit of my pro-life advocacy doing some pretty ineffective things. Now, one of the things I do at ERI is I run our affiliate group program where we mentor local pro-life groups. And as I'm mentoring groups that are just getting started, I love telling them, this is not me up here on my ivory tower looking down on you and the idiot things that you have done with your club in the past. Like, this is me telling you that I did all of the same things. Like, I used to run a very ineffective pro-life club. And here's what I learned from it. And I hope that by me helping you, you can avoid some of the mistakes that I made. Because I, too, lived as a highly ineffective pro-lifer for a while. I lived as a pro-lifer that didn't really care about abortion, didn't want to get involved. Then I lived as an active pro-lifer who wasn't doing effective things. And before I learned that there are much more effective ways to communicate. And I I want a big part of my job at URI to be to help pro-life people to avoid many of the mistakes that I made. Absolutely. I, and I'm so thankful that there's people like you in that role to, to be able to pass on the wisdom that you've gained, not just from making good arguments, but by making bad arguments and losing from them. I feel like on, on the podcast here, some of the most popular episodes that I've done are don't use these pro-life arguments of like arguments that I experimented with and completely bombed and um, outreach and, and different events and pro-life activity that like makes a ton of sense when you're sitting behind your computer or with your notebook or too late on a Saturday night kind of thing. But you know what? When the rubber hits the road, they're not actually that great. Um, last question I'm going to ask you before we dive into the meat and potatoes of, of bodily autonomy stuff. Um, one thing that I have really come to appreciate, and, and you've alluded to it on several occasions now, of like the process that Equal Rights Institute goes through when they're talking about how do you respond to different pro-choice arguments. That it's not shooting from the hip. It's not the first thing that comes to mind. It's not Twitter bait. It's not anything like that. Like in my opinion, and this isn't to pump your tires or Josh's tires or anybody else's tires, but in my opinion, Equal Rights Institute is one of, if not the best organizations for nuance in responding to meaningful pro-choice arguments. That it's not a matter of like absolute annihilation of pro-choicers often sometimes there's a little bit of that as well i'm sure when when like the argument demands that but i'm curious when you're approaching um outreach when you're approaching engaging abortion advocates is there a process that you guys go through that that helps you develop that nuance of like really responding to the question that's being asked or really answering a concern that is being made by an abortion advocate rather than just like hoping that what your response will be will resonate with them or what does that approach look like for you guys Absolutely. So we always start by trying to really understand pro-choice people. And that comes, I think, through the amount of outreach that both we do and that groups that we have trained, our affiliate groups do. Um, I am both here to mentor our affiliate groups, but also to learn from them. They're out there doing outreach. And we always say there is a big difference between adults like myself coming in and talking on a college campus to college students and like getting their reactions and college students talking to other college students. You can get different vibes in a conversation. Different things will come out. And so it's important that I spend a significant amount of my time at ERI actively out there talking to pro-choice people. It is also important that I am talking to my college students who are talking to pro-choice people and hearing from them what's going on and making sure that we are all taking a ton of time in our conversation trying to really understand 
pro-choice people. And I think that this looks like two things. A, it looks like understanding the person you're talking to and the argument they are making. So for example, if I hear a pro-choice person making a new argument, I want to make sure that I fully understand it. And that means taking a lot of time to listen. It means taking the time to ask really good clarification questions. And it means even rephrasing back to them what their argument is. Like once you feel like you have a grasp on it, repeat it and ask them, you know, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you. Uh, So can I repeat back to you what I hear you're saying? And then please correct me if I've gotten it wrong. This is also helpful just like as a side note from a persuasion perspective, because they really come to respect you if they feel like you're taking the time to try to understand them. So I think you need to understand the new argument and then be able to, you know, communicate it back to me if you're an affiliate group. But I also think you need to just understand pro-choice people in general and how pro-choice people think. Because I'm not always going to be able to talk to a pro-choice person, like in my process of coming up with a response. So for example, if I hear a new argument from a pro-choice person, now I'm going to go back to my house. I'm going to consult with our team and we're going to talk about how we might respond to it. And we are absolutely at the end of this process going to go back out and talk to real pro-choice people with the responses we've come up with and see how they respond, see what they think. But it's also important to be able to predict what they might say. And I think it's important to understand pro-choice people well in order to be able to predict what they might say. Because I know that I, when I first started doing pro-life work, did not understand pro-choice people. I didn't understand what drove them. I didn't understand their arguments. I didn't understand like what their thought process is, what kinds of things are important to them, what values. And granted, pro-choice people is a very broad spectrum. Like I don't want to overgeneralize here. And that's where the clarification questions of understanding this specific person matters. But when you've talked to a lot of this specific persons, you can start to generalize and at least understand, okay, how might a certain type of pro-choice person respond to my argument? Or what are the potential objections they could come up with? And it is so much easier to do that when you've spent a lot of time really caring about understanding pro-choice people, because that enables me to essentially do practice dialogues with my staff members really well. And that's another thing we kind of do in the middle of this process is we'll talk through the arguments and I can play a really good pro-choice person because I've talked to so many pro-choice people and I really care about representing them well. And I care about understanding how they think. And that enables me to kind of get in that mindset and help us kind of predict what things they might say or what objections they might have. And then we can be more effective in how we're crafting our responses and making sure that we're really actually responding to what they're saying and not to some straw man of what they're saying. Absolutely. I, I love it. And and that's the approach that obviously we try to take at CCPR as well of, of like all of our speakers have a requirement of how much outreach they have to do each year to make sure they're actually understanding what's being said on a street. And I love the mock dialogue component as well. My my colleague Quan is a rock star and she runs um, virtual mock dialogue calls every Tuesday evening and, and people from across Canada. And I'm sure uh, actually a couple of folks in the States too come in on them. And she's really good at being an, an abortion advocate too, uh, as many of us are, because we see where they're going to go. And it's so fast. And I'm sure that you, you guys get into it at ERI as well about like going back and forth and like, how do I lay this conversation that is going to be realistic, but also like, what are the loopholes? What is, what is this person getting at? What kind of, um, uh, traps can can an abortion advocate lay? What kind of traps can a pro-lifer lay that, that might not be fair, but might be realistic or, or alternative? And so I, I love that approach of how to actually make sure that this isn't just what we think that they're thinking, but rather bouncing it off of them, actually seeking to understand where they're at, and then testing this in a, a broad environment to make sure that our responses actually work. So that, that's phenomenal. And I think that's a 
an excellent approach for any argumentation, whether it's talking about bodily autonomy, as we're going to get into now, or whether it's with regards to sexual assault, whether it's with regards, to, I know that you guys obviously put in a tremendous amount of work in um, the post-real world and, and like, how do we navigate conversations about legislation and things like that. So phenomenal approach to it. And let's start applying that to the bodily autonomy question. And, and first one off top, I, I mentioned it earlier. Have you been noticing that bodily autonomy seems to be coming up a little bit more frequently now in the outreach that you guys are doing? Or have you just found that like this is always a prevalent theme, no no major gains or losses in how often it comes up? Um, what, what has your feel been on how frequently bodily autonomy style arguments are coming up in conversation? I would say that they've been increasing pretty consistently for about the last eight years. Now, I haven't been doing pro-life work for eight years, so this is coming from my colleagues who have, but I would say in my time, I've been actively doing outreach for about five years now. And in those five years, I have seen every single year it get more and more prevalent. I think mainly bodily autonomy arguments are coming up among more of the, the college-educated kind of crowd of pro-choice people, who is definitely the people that I spend the most time with. However, I will say when I do, I make our short videos. I make our TikToks, as Cam mentioned earlier. When I talk back and forth with people in TikTok comments, we often don't end up in bodily autonomy land. Um, and I don't know if that's because the crowd of TikTok is a little bit younger. Um, but I, I do notice that the arguments tend to be different regardless of or depending on where I do an outreach. But if I'm in like a college campus, if I'm talking to more highly educated people, it's bodily autonomy all day long. That's always the number one argument that's coming up. Yeah. Gotcha. And and that's why I think it's so important to dive into. So we, we've touched on this um, in a couple of past episodes, but I, I'm thrilled that we're able to dive into it in earnest in a full episode. So let's do it. Let, let's talk about, and, and the way that I want to walk through this for the audience sake, so that you know what's coming at you. I, I'd love to chat, Emily, about what people are not saying when they say my body, my choice, what people are actually saying, and then what pro-lifers should be engaging with. Not necessarily a, a an elevator pitch response kind of thing, but off the top of your head, not off the top of your head, because I know that you do a ton of research into this, but what are pro-choicers not saying when they're saying my body, my choice? So like what mistakes are pro-lifers misinterpreting when they hear a pro-choicer say to them, you know what? I think abortion should be allowed because my body, my choice, I should be allowed to do whatever I want. What are they not actually saying when they get to that? So you're exactly correct that pro-choice people kind of have this assumption, this premise underneath that saying that I think a lot of pro-life people aren't aware is there. And therefore, there's this misunderstanding that's happening. Mm. Most pro-choice people, much to the shock of pro-life people, are not actually confused about the biology of the unborn. Now, there are pro-choice people that are confused about the biology of the unborn. I go back and forth about the biology of the unborn in TikTok comments probably more than anything else. So I believe there are pro-choice people confused about the biology of the unborn, but that is not the vast majority of them. Most pro-choice people are willing to say, yes, the unborn is biologically a living member of the species Homo sapiens, to like use the most neutral possible language. What they are saying by my body, my choice, is that a woman's body is essentially her sovereign zone, is essentially what we call this kind of an argument. It's a sovereign zone argument. A woman's body is this special place, and your body too is a man's body is a special place. We all have these bodies that they are our special place. We get to make decisions about what happens in our body. It's almost like this is your kingdom. It falls under your jurisdiction. You get to make choices. It is my body, my choice. And therefore, since pregnancy is obviously happening inside of a woman's body, it's happening in the land that falls under my jurisdiction. So it doesn't really matter 
if the unborn is a human, it's a person with rights. Like that isn't super relevant here because it's inside my body. And my right to do what I want with my body trumps any sort of other person's rights. Like my right to my body is the most important thing and it supersedes any rights that someone else would have. That's really what they mean by my body, my choice, but they're not always clear when they say that. Love it. And and I'm so glad that you outlined it that way because one thing that we often do in our trainings, we have a lot of R's in our training for whatever reason. And we often have, let's not refute and let's not resolve right off the hop. That, that we're not going to, I feel like so many pro-lifers have that temptation to just refute on this issue in particular of like, but it's not your body. Does a mother have 20 fingers and 20 toes? And does she have two genetic codes? And is she both a man and a woman? Like, I hear that online. I hear that in person way too I've often. Said it. And Years. I, I, I spent years I, I, saying that before I got here. <laughs> I training years. <laughs> I, I appreciate the honesty of myself as well, and and I feel like there there's a logical reason why a pro lifer wants to say that. But your explanation as to what they're actually getting at allows us to get beyond that refutation. They're not actually often questioning whether or not a preborn child is exactly like their kidney or exactly like any other part of their body. What they're getting at, like you said, is. I don't want other people influencing what I can and can't do with my body, especially like you said, in that sovereign territory of literally inside of my body, that this is different than most other scenarios. I would argue any other scenario in which we as humans live in. And so if that's what people are getting at, what starts going through your mind as you try to understand that and how we start building an appropriate response that actually hits what they're thinking about, what, what they're actually meaning when they say my body, my choice. So anytime I hear a pro-choice person really say the word body at all, anytime she makes reference to the woman's body, immediately my brain is flagged that this is probably a bodily autonomy argument. And now I'm going to start listening to the kind of language that she's using because there's actually two kinds of bodily autonomy arguments that she could be making. I will call it uh, the better one and the the worse one, the more intelligent one and the less intelligent one. I'm not judging pro-choice people for, for making one or the other. Um, uh, but there is a better and a worse version of this argument. And I'm trying to kind of understand how much she's thought about this before uh, and maybe which one of those she's using. So the one that we just described, the sovereign zone position, is essentially what my body, my choice as a slogan means. It is my body, my choice. And this is the more common of the two. If I hear her saying phrases like the government shouldn't be able to control women's bodies, my body, my choice, I get to make decisions about what happens in my body. Those kinds of language words are very much so cluing me in to sovereign zone. But I'm going to ask a couple more clarification questions just to get her to expand on her view so I can start kind of narrowing down and being like, yep, okay, this truly is a sovereign zone kind of view, as opposed to the more intelligent kind of bodily rights argument, which I call the right to refuse position. Uh, this is more the idea that you have the right to refuse the use of your body by other people who are trying to use it. So typical kind of key words for this category would be talking about things like organ donation, talking about women having to use their bodies as incubators, talking about how essentially like women shouldn't be forced to be baby factories. Like the idea that you have this right to stop another person from using your body, just like we have the ability to consent to sex. And if you don't consent to someone using your body in sex, that would be rape and that would be wrong. We have this thing happening where there is another person, 
Nope, we're assuming the fetus is a person here. There is a person who is using your body. And if they are using it without your consent, you have a right to refuse to that. And by refusing, what you're doing is you're having an abortion and that is acting as your refusal of the use. So those are two like very nuanced differences, but I'm going to go about responding to those sovereign zone and right to refuse things differently. So I think it's important to like key in to what kind of bodily autonomy. Is it a refusal or is it true like autonomy? I get to make decisions about things kind of language that she's using. Love it. Love it. And that's why we're getting you on here because I, I love that nuance that comes into it. And I, I would agree that, that there's a a different way that people are approaching this. And so so if they are approaching it with that sovereign zone, if, if that's the one that I, I must admit here in Canada, I hear far more frequently, this idea of like, it's literally inside my body. I can do whatever I want with it. And and like that's where I get people talking through often this idea that like I'm okay with late-term abortions. I'm okay with gender-selective abortions. I'm okay with any of these kinds of abortions so long as it's inside my body. Everything changes as soon as that baby's outside. Uh, preterm delivery, whatever it may be, as soon as that baby's outside of my body, things change. But this is literally coming down to the environment this child is in and my bodily autonomy uh, like and, and the intimacy of it. And so if we have something like a a sovereign zone kind of um, argument, I suppose. Where are we going? What, what what goes through your mind for where we're going to respond to that effectively? So the sovereign zone position, the idea you can do literally anything you want with anything inside your body is a very strong claim. Like that, that's a really big thing to say that you can do anything you want with anything inside your body. So ultimately what I'm going to do to try to refute it is to demonstrate that the person I'm talking to, the pro-choice person, doesn't actually believe the conclusion of their own position. They don't actually think you have a right to do anything you want with anything inside your body. And that it's not their fault that they they don't realize they have this contradiction. Like, I just want to help them in the least snarky way possible to realize that they don't actually agree with the conclusion. Um, and mainly, there's four implications of the sovereign zone position that I will talk through with the person I'm talking to. And I'll be completely honest with you, I have never had to get through all four implications. These are deliberately designed to be increasingly more difficult to accept. And so I do the first one. And I would say, at least in the United States, I have never done outreach in Canada, so I cannot speak to your people up there. But down here, I would say about 75% of people abandon ship after the first implication. I would say about 20% abandon ship after the second one. My remaining 5% abandon ship after the third one. And I have never used the fourth. Literally never. Um, because everyone abandoned ships before that. So let's, let's talk through what those are. But that's kind of like the overall framework. <laughs> so, okay. Implication number one is that if the sovereign zone view is true, there can be no restrictions on abortion at all. You already alluded to this. There are pro-choice people that are willing to say... They're okay with late-term abortions. They're okay with sex selection of abortions. But that is not most pro-choice people, which is why I always bring up that first. We know, at least in the United States, there was a 2019 PBS NewsHour Marist poll that was specifically trying to understand what pro-choice people think about abortion. And in the United States, they discovered that 72% of self-identified pro-choice people believe there should be a cutoff for where in pregnancy people should not be allowed to have an abortion anymore. Um, the most common places were either six months, three months, or viability. I don't really care where this pro-choice person wants to put the line for the purposes of this line of questioning. All I want to know is that the person I'm talking to does think there should be a line somewhere. And most people think there should be a line somewhere. And so I'm going to point out that contradiction to them in the least snarky way possible. Like, 
I would say something like, if they came to me with a my body, my choice thing, I'm going to follow up by asking a question about if they think there should be any restrictions on abortion. I'd say about uh, that stat is pretty accurate to my experience. About 75% of the time, the person says, yes, they think there should be a cutoff somewhere. And then I'll respond by saying, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really common view. I've definitely heard that a lot. You know, I think most people think at some point in pregnancy, like you shouldn't be able to have an abortion anymore. That, that seems reasonable. Um, maybe, maybe I just misunderstood you. I, I'm a little confused. It sounded to me like you kind of contradicted yourself. I'm sure you didn't mean to, like nobody means to do that. Maybe I just like didn't track with you. I heard you say that you're really concerned about women having the right to do anything they want with anything inside their bodies. Uh, but then you also said you thought there should be a restriction on abortion. So it sounds to me like you are okay with what, controlling what women do with their bodies, like sometimes and not other times. Help me, help me out here. What did I miss? They will basically always abandon ship on bodily autonomy arguments. What they will do is they'll say something like, oh yeah, well, I do think you can control women's bodies. Like you, you can restrict abortion at a certain point because late on in pregnancy, it's a baby at that point. And early on in pregnancy, it's not. We've made it into personhood land. They have now stopped trying to justify abortion based solely on a right to bodily autonomy. They are now justifying abortion because early on in pregnancy, it's not a human and late on in pregnancy, it is. And we're in a completely different category of arguments and I can happily go address that. I am just thrilled that they abandoned the sovereign zone position because that is not a tenable place to live. So that's implication number one. Cool. Love it. And and that so we we talk at, at CSPR often about this roadmap for conversations, dealing with the justification for abortion and moving towards the humanity of the preborn. And then if necessary, getting into the personhood of that living member of the human species. And so that that's tracking exactly. We want to get people from the justification, from the bodily autonomy argument towards okay, now we're talking about whether or not they're human or not. And we're tracking, we're moving along the roadmap in the right direction. We want to talk about the humanity of the preborn. I want you to say something like you mentioned of, but it's different, that's a human, and we can control people's um, autonomy on whether or not it's a human, that kind of thing. That's exactly where we want to go. So that's Bengo, 100%, um, same process for us up here. Um, let's go to number two. So what, what happens if they double down? Is, is that the second level? If they double down, they say, no, 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 no. Um, no exceptions. What is level two argument on this for you? Yeah, you're exactly correct. So if the purchase person I'm talking to either already thinks there should be no restrictions on abortion, or if they're willing to bite that bullet, they're like, oh, it makes me uncomfortable. But you're right. You are right. I have to say there should be no restrictions on abortion. I'm willing to do it. Then, yep, I'm going to move on to implication number two, which requires me to go talk about thalidomide. Um, so thalidomide is a very tragic part of medical history. Uh, this was a medicine that was used back in the 1950s, and it was used to treat severe morning sickness or being nauseous during pregnancy. And it was very effective at doing that, but doctors figured out too late that it was causing very severe birth defects. So it was causing babies to be born without arms and legs or with very, very severely deformed arms and legs. Um, this is a real thing that happened to about 10,000 babies that were born between 1955 and 1960 all over the United States, Canada, and most of Western Europe. And so when they figured out that this was happening, um, doctors and like the FDA in the United States rightfully pulled thalidomide from the shelves. You can actually still get thalidomide today. 
It is used to treat several things, but there are insane regulations around it. I don't know the exact regulations there are in Canada. I can tell you the exact ones in the United States. Um, the FDA put this like regulation on it where in order to get thalidomide from your doctor, you have to prove that you are on two simultaneous forms of birth control and you have to turn in weekly pregnancy tests to your doctor to prove that you are not pregnant. And the exact moment that you get pregnant, you are yanked off of thalidomide for obvious reasons. Like they don't want more babies to be born without arms and legs when we could be preventing that. Like that's, that's horrible. Um, so every pro-choice person I have ever talked to agrees that we should have these regulations around thalidomide. But here's the problem, right? If the sovereign zone view is true, if you have a right to do anything you want with anything inside your body, then we cannot have any restrictions on thalidomide. I'm not saying any any woman would actually do this, but if there was hypothetically a woman who went to her doctor and was having really severe morning sickness and she said, I want you to give me thalidomide because I know it is very effective at treating morning sickness, because it is, it is very effective at treating morning sickness, then we would have to give it to her because her body's her sovereign zone. She can do anything she wants with anything inside her body. And it is extremely rare that I have a pro-choice person bite the bullet on that because people have spent their entire lives often building up this wall about abortion. Like they've just had all of this, this, these slogans, these propaganda, like pushed at them for years and years and years. It's not a baby. It's her body, her choice. She can make decisions. Like there's all these things, these walls that we have. No one has spent 20 years or 30 years or 40 years building up walls against thalidomide. Most people have never heard of it before. And they don't have the immediate reaction of like, oh, obviously she should have the right to have thalidomide. Like everyone is immediately horrified. And so typically the response, I would say back to my like percentages here, about 75% of people abandon ship after the first one. I'd say the next 20% abandon it after this one. And typically the response I get is, oh, well, that that's different from abortion because now this is affecting a, a child. There's a child who's going to have to live their entire life without arms and legs. And that's horrible. But an abortion doesn't affect anyone. Boom, we're in personhood land. Now we can go talk about the humanity of the unborn and the fact that yes, actually an abortion does affect someone. There is a human that is being killed who should have a right to life. I am thrilled. I am more than happy to go do that because again, they have abandoned the sovereign zone position. They're no longer trying to say you actually have a right to do anything you want with anything inside your body because they didn't believe that in the first place. That is not what they actually believe, but it's a catchy slogan. It sounds really good. I like the concept that I should have the right to do anything I want with my body. But when we actually dig down, we realize no one actually thinks that because that would mean we would have to take all th away all thalidomide regulations. And that's just not where people are at. Yeah, absolutely. I love it again. And and again, like we've talked about, that's moving down the roadmap towards the conversation about humanity, personhood, that kind of thing. I, I absolutely love it. Often up here, I don't know where things are at in Minnesota or, or obviously throughout the states, but of, uh, in Canada, I, I would assume that you guys have a similar crisis in many ways around opioids and other drug abuse and whatnot. And that's a, a frequent thing that comes up in conversation about what about a mother who's addicted to hard drugs and, and the addiction that has on the preborn child and all that kind of stuff. Like, being able to pivot towards that if somebody's not very familiar with thalidomide and the process there, at the very least, we could agree that if we find out that a pregnant mother is addicted to drugs, I like trying to get her to stop taking those drugs for the sake of the child as well. And and not even to mention the posters that, that we have in pubs up here of like, 
if you're pregnant, don't drink. If you're pregnant on, on your cigarette carton, like, like don't smoke. If you're pregnant, like, like we have all of these guidelines that speak to a similar theme that by choosing to do this, you will be harming your preborn child. And that's not appropriate. Um, I, I love it, especially because of the poignancy of thalidomide and how we might not be at a spot in society. Like I, I don't know what regulations would be jurisdiction to jurisdiction. If a bartender knew that a customer was pregnant, can they, how much alcohol can they serve them kind of thing? It really comes to a point when you're talking about thalidomide. So I love that as an analogy that we can use to demonstrate that that second point of even if you think that there is um, autonomy through all nine months pregnancy, you don't actually believe that because you don't have complete control over what you're doing. Love it. So that's number two. Hit us. What's number three? So number three basically just takes thalidomide one step further. Um, I don't think that any women are like this or that anyone would actually do this. But we're in philosophy land. And if we've gotten this far with the pro-choice person, they're deep in philosophy land with me. And if we can imagine it in philosophy land, then it goes. And we could imagine someone like this. What if there was a woman who was pregnant and she went to her doctor and she said, I want you to give me thalidomide, but not because I have morning sickness. I want you to give me thalidomide so that I can intentionally deform my child. We would have to give it to her. Again, I'm not saying this is what women are like or that I would actually do this. Like, I don't know why someone would. Um, maybe this person like thinks they're going to get a tax break. Or maybe they already have a child with a disability and now they don't want to have a perfect child after that. I mean, this is a seriously messed up person. I am not saying anyone would actually do this, but we can't say it's wrong. If someone actually did want to intentionally deform their child, we cannot say that's wrong if the sovereign's own position is true. And I have literally never had a pro-choice person bite the bullet on that. I've never met a pro-choice person who thinks that it would be okay, or at least that we cannot say it's wrong for someone to intentionally deform their child. And usually the reason for that is because now it's affecting a person, right? It's affecting a child who's going to have to grow up their whole life with this deformity that happened to them intentionally, and an abortion doesn't harm anyone. And boom, now we're in personhood camp and we can go talk about that. And they've abandoned the sovereign zone position. I have never had anyone be willing to continue on the sovereign zone path after realizing that implication. Love it. And I'm so glad that you went through. I was hoping that, that was going to be number three. And like straight up to the audience, we didn't actually talk about this beforehand. I, I've read articles and I, I thought that's where you were going. I'm so glad that's where you went because I've heard lots of analogies about like, um, limitations to bodily autonomy when it comes to smoking, drinking and driving for whatever reason had like a major phase amongst the Canadian pro-life movement of like, we don't have mm. complete control of our bodies, drinking and driving, you're not allowed to get behind the wheel. And I love taking that one step further of what if you were not drinking and driving because you didn't think that you were drunk, but because you wanted to hurt people. What if you were making this choice? What if you were drinking not because you enjoy drinking, but because you wanted to hurt your baby? What if you weren't a smoker before you became pregnant? And this wasn't a matter of I'm struggling quitting smoking and I know that it's bad for my baby, but I'm trying, but rather I am taking up smoking because I want to harm my baby. That messed up approach, but, but making it, I mean, when you think about abortion, 
but like this is a tragic and, and I get that it isn't malicious, um, but I think that people need to realize the horrors that abortion truly are when it comes to like, but people are trying to kill their babies when they're having abortions. This is not miscarriage. This is not something that's accidentally happening and that there are a lot more parallels when you make that point about thalidomide, about somebody who is intentionally doing this. Do we have the right to torture a child? Could you have a partial abortion and literally go in and like, it sounds horrifying. And yet this is why it's number three, right? You're probably not going to hit him with that like idea right off the bat, because not only are they going to be alarmed and maybe end the conversation, but also because you don't have that rapport. You haven't gotten to the point where we're not trying to demonize everybody in America as wanting to torture their babies, but rather like if you actually believe this position, like this is the natural conclusion of this argument. Um, and, and so I'm very glad that, that that's where you go. And, and very thankful, obviously, that the majority of people that you go there with abandon ship entirely and that you've never had to get to number four but maybe a, a quick thought on that. And then what is number four? Just, um, I'm sure that the curiosity of our audience wants to know what, what, what that number four is, just in case they meet that unicorn that goes to level four. Mm -hmm. um, does that make sense? What I mentioned, uh, kind of my thoughts on level three, and then what is number four? Yes, absolutely. It makes sense. You are so wise to say that it would be a very poor decision to jump straight to implication number three with a pro-choice person. It's extremely powerful. Yes. And I can hear that pro-life person in my head who's like, if you've got this really powerful thing, just use it right away. But you don't have the rapport. <laughs> exactly. No, that is the fastest way to get them to walk away from the conversation. I want to keep this person talking to me, keep this person feeling safe in the conversation. And if I can just slowly introduce them to harder and harder and harder things, then when we say the hard things, they're going to be able to hear them. And if I don't need to go all the way to that hard thing, I'm not going to because they're like able to jump ship on an easier thing. And I can save my rapport for a later push. Like I can save my rapport for the end when I talk about why abortion is wrong. At ERI, we have this kind of analogy we use that I think um, rapport is kind of like chips or tokens that you might earn at an arcade. Like, did you ever go to an arcade as a kid and you like get all these tickets from playing the, the things? And then there's like the store and you can spend them. Those tickets are completely worthless if you leave the arcade. Okay. You can't use them. They are not currency. They are not money. But in this very specific setting, they are worth something. And so you need to spend them before you leave. And that's what rapport is like in a conversation. You're building up all of this rapport and you have to be careful about when you spend it, but you should spend it because if this conversation ends and they walk away and you didn't spend your rapport, uh, sorry, you lost it. It's not valuable to you anymore. And so it is good if I can save my rapport until the end of the conversation to be able to make a strong push about why abortion is wrong. I'm going to do that. I'm not going to spend all my rapport in the first two seconds because then they're likely to walk away because they don't trust me yet. So I think it's very important to go through these in order and hopefully you will never get to implication number four, which is basically the idea that if the sovereign's own view is true, then as you kind of alluded to, Cam, you have the right to do literally anything to an unborn child, including having it tortured to death. Um, and I deliberately, if I ever have to get this far, um, which I don't in conversations, but I do do this in speeches. 
Um, when I do a bodily autonomy lecture for a philosophy class on a college campus, I will go this far. So I am used to saying it and describing it to pro-choice people, but I don't do this in one-on-one conversations. Um, and ultimately, I, I deliberately try to describe this as being far worse than just an abortion far worse than even just a partial birth abortion. I'll say something like, what if there was a woman who, and I'm not saying this is what women are like or anyone would actually do this, but if a woman hired a doctor to go in there with medical instruments daily for all nine months of pregnancy, long after we know for sure that that fetus can feel pain. Like, let's assume that the most pro-choice doctors in the world, and the, they're the ones who've been doing the research, let's assume they're right. And fetal pain begins at like maybe 24 weeks of pregnancy. I really don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of science that says that's false. But let's assume it for a second. Let's operate in the assumption those doctors are right. It's 24 weeks. That still leaves 16 weeks of daily torture where we know for sure that that fetus can feel pain. We wouldn't do that to a squirrel. Like, we would not torture a squirrel with medical instruments daily for 16 weeks. And then just as the woman is finally in labor, the baby is about to come out, then kill it. Like that is beyond inhumane. Even if you don't think that the fetus is a person with rights and like, we can totally go talk about that. But even if you don't think that you think it doesn't really have any value, we wouldn't do that to any animal. Like, we do not torture things that can feel pain for 16 weeks every single day, operating under the assumption that that is like the minimum amount of time that the fetus could feel pain. But it could be a lot longer than that if more pro-life kind of researchers are correct. And so no one actually thinks that that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like you yeah. don't have a right to do literally anything you want with your body. And I've never had to go there in a conversation. And praise God for that. And I hope that that, um, you and the audience never need to go there either. Um, I can think of one or two scenarios where I've had to go there in conversation. And, Mm -hmm. and I, and and as I alluded to tying in with number three there of like the, the horrors that go into it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I think that it's poignant. And I also appreciate how you talk about, the child dying at the end of those nine months still, because I feel like there's some people who'll be tempted to say it's wrong to do it then, not because that child has any standing then, but rather because a potential human or a human down the road will have to deal with the consequences of those actions that sure, um, making bad decisions when you're a teenager, um, it doesn't matter for when you're a teenager, but because you won't be able to run for politics 25 years later, that's why you shouldn't do dumb things. It's not a matter of this is wrong because of the implications way down the road, but rather this is wrong even if this child doesn't have to grow up with the bullying that happens at school or not be able to participate on the varsity sports team or whatever. This is wrong even if the child dies before they're cognizantly aware of the torture that they've endured. And so I really appreciate how you ended that way because I've seen a few people kind of try to skirt outside of the argument by saying thalidomide is wrong, not because it's harming an actual human, but rather because it's harming a potential human. And just like how dumb financial decisions might impact your mortgage rates later on, bad financial decisions are bad in the moment. Making bad decisions in the moment are bad decisions for the sake of the decision now, not just because they'll have bearing 
or bear bad fruit later on. So I really appreciate how how you fleshed that out. Let's talk for a moment about the other form of bodily autonomy argument. So that's the sovereign zone. You mentioned that the second area is more the, um, I, I don't remember exactly the term it used, like the personal donation kind of thing, the, the yes. self-sacrificing component. Mm-hmm. So presumably the majority of people, like I, I think that you said, are going to take more of that um, sovereign zone kind of area. But I'm sure there's some people who might start there and flow towards this self-sacrifice or people who might start here. Where are we going when it comes not to a matter of like abortion is okay because they're physically inside of my body, but rather abortion is okay because I'm not a um, – a baby factory uh, because I'm not, I'm not a, an incubator. W- yes, an incubator. What whatever <laughs> language they might want to use. Uh, again, like uh, maybe off the top, and and correct me if I'm wrong. I used to be really smug, and when they started to describe the violinist argument, I might be like, "Well, what was this a violinist or was this a cellist?" Because I think there's a major difference as to whether or not it's a violinist or a cellist. Like, don't be that prick who's going like diving person. into this. Um, <laughs> Former music major, don't be that person. <laughs> <laughs> You might actually, no, I won't get into that. But so uh, maybe, maybe Leon again, just to refresh everyone's memory, what is the, the self-sacrifice kind of model and how are we, how, how would you suggest approaching it as a pro-life response? Yeah. So this, this model I call the right to refuse position, essentially the idea that we don't force people to donate their bodies to people in other contexts. So why are we trying to do it in pregnancy? Like if you, Cam, were dying of kidney failure, this is often how I hear it come up in conversation. If I'm talking to like a philosophy major, yeah, they're going to describe the violinist. Uh, but if I'm like just talking to more of an average pro-choice person who's maybe a little more intellectual and has, has heard about these kind of better kinds of bodily autonomy arguments, it usually comes up just by describing standard old kidney donation or blood donation, something like that. So if Cam was dying of kidney failure and I was the only person in the whole world capable of donating my kidney to Cam, I still don't have like a legal requirement to do that. The government could not literally force me to donate my kidney to camp. I would be a nice person if I did, like I should be applauded and given all of the awards and it'd be really heroic. And maybe we should be happy that people do that, but it shouldn't be required of me. And so in the same way that I don't have a legal obligation to donate my kidney to Cam, even if he'll die, if I don't do it, then I also shouldn't have a legal obligation to donate my body in this kind of like literal organs, donate my organs to this unborn person. Assuming that they are a person with rights, just like Cam, and they're going to die if I don't do it, I still don't have to. Maybe I'm a really nice heroic person. If I choose to, that's great. We should applaud women who choose to go through pregnancy and all of that. But You shouldn't be required by the government to go through pregnancy because it is an organ donation-esque thing that's literally happening to you. And I think this argument is becoming very slowly the more popular kind. It's not there yet. Sovereign zone is still a more popular argument for the average person. But as soon as I hear a pro-choice person get exposed to this argument, they start parroting it everywhere because it makes so much sense. And I think it is so... Uh, convincing because of the logic of it. Like we already have talked about organ donation kinds of scenarios and the rest of like, everybody's familiar with how that works. Everyone thinks it'd be unjust if the government forced you to donate your kidney. And that's what's happening in pregnancy. There's organs that they're being donated. So why can you force that? Like 
this makes so much sense. And so it makes perfect like logic to me why a pro-choice person who hears that kind of right to refuse argument for the first time, it becomes their thing. And in my experience, as soon as a pro-choice person is exposed to it, that becomes their number one argument. They start parroting it everywhere. So essentially how I would go about starting to respond to it, and there's a variety of different responses that we teach at ERI to this one. This one's a lot more complicated than Sovereign Zone. Um, so if you want just like super quick plug, if you want to find all our resources on this, if you go to equalrightsinstitute.com slash bodily rights, that is our landing page for bodily rights arguments. And you're going to find a bunch of resources on right to refuse and kind of the multiple different responses to this. I am just going to teach you about one. Um, the one that I think is the most basic to understand. And it's usually the place I go first when I'm talking with a pro-choice person. Most pro-choice people understand this one. And then we move on to a different abortion argument and like, we're fine. Occasionally, someone wants to get more into the weeds, in which case, like there are more resources for you and you can learn more about other responses and like more deep philosophical things. But ultimately, the simplest response uh, I call the obligation to not kill people approach. Um, basically, this talks about understanding the difference between helping, not helping, and killing someone. So let's go back to that whole Cam is dying situation because I enjoy killing Cam in thought experiments. Uh, so here we go. Cam is dying of kidney failure, right? I'm the only person in the world who can donate my kidney to him. I think I hypothetically have three options in this scenario. I can help Cam, which would be me donating my kidney to Cam. He wouldn't die. Yay. Everyone would be happy. I'm a good person. Okay. I could not help Cam which would be me refusing to donate my kidney to Cam. He would die. Sad day. Maybe I'm a bad person, but like I shouldn't be legally in trouble for that. Or hypothetically, I have this third option. Hypothetically, I could kill Cam. I could just like come at him right now with a gun, eliminate his need for my kidney, save me a lot of embarrassment from having said no to him. Like technically, I hypothetically have the option to kill Cam. We all know that should not be a legal option on the table for me, but I could do it. And so if we take away that option, if we say, yes, it should be illegal, then I really have two legal options available to me, help or not help. Both of them are perfectly valid. The problem is not all three of those options exist from the get-go in every scenario. Like, for example, let's say that Cam gets a giant boat. This one's way more fun. You don't have to die in this one, Cam. Um, let's say that you get a giant boat. You like, I don't know, you win the lottery and you get this giant yacht. And as one does, if you get a giant yacht, uh, you take it out one Saturday afternoon just for a couple hours all by yourself out in the middle of the ocean just to like have your chill Saturday afternoon with a beer. And you're out there and you discover as you're in the middle of the ocean that there is actually a four-year-old on your boat. This four-year-old had like been playing a game with his siblings on the docks and then he'd like wandered onto a stranger's boat and hid in a closet and then promptly fell asleep. And I have, I've totally babysat four-year-olds that would do this. Um, so let's say that you discover as you're in the middle of your little afternoon cruise out there that there's this four-year-old on your boat. I think you only have two options. I think you can either help the four-year-old by allowing it to be peacefully on your boat till you take the boat back to shore and you call the police and you're like, uh, there's a four-year-old on my boat. I need you to come take care of that. And boom, like done. We've washed your hands of the scenario. You have helped the four-year-old and you don't have to deal with it anymore. Or hypothetically, you, you could throw the four-year-old overboard. You could drown the four-year-old. 
There is no Cam just refuses to help the four-year-old option. It it literally doesn't exist. Like if it did, that would be the equivalent of us like sci-fi beaming this four-year-old off of Cam's boat and onto shore so that Cam doesn't have to deal with the four-year-old anymore and the four-year-old will be fine. If we had that technology, that would be so awesome, honestly, for multiple reasons. <laughs> but we don't. We do not have sci-fi beaming technology. And so there is no I just refuse to help option. And so if that's true, and then it just comes down to help or kill. And I think killing is always wrong. Except in weird cases like self-defense. And so if I'm right about that, that means that Cam in this scenario is essentially obligated to help. It's not because he's generally obligated to help four-year-olds. It's just because he may not do the other option. He may not kill innocent human beings. And so that situation is way more analogous to pregnancy than the whole kidney donation thing. Because in pregnancy, there is no I just refuse to help option. If there was, that'd be the equivalent of us like Star Trek sci-fi beaming the fetus out of the mother's womb in an artificial womb. If we had a technology, that would be awesome, but we don't. And so you really only have two options once you're pregnant, help or kill. And I think killing is always wrong, except in weird cases like self-defense. And so it's not that I think people are generally obligated to help. I wouldn't normally require someone to tolerate a strange four-year-old in their boat. I wouldn't normally require someone to make the kind of physical sacrifice that is pregnancy. I am only going to require those two things for as long as it takes to get that other person to shore or to a place where someone else can take care of them safely because there is no other nonviolent option. And that is why ultimately the whole pregnancy thing doesn't actually like work in an analogy with organ donation because an organ donation and I just refuse to help option exists. And that option does not exist in pregnancy. Love it. And, and I love it, especially so, so we have our, our apologetics book stack and in there, I go through a lived experience that is eerily similar to that. And so when I was in high school, my best friend, Robert, um, his family had an identical, we had this like big GMC safari van, um, a green GMC safari. He had the exact same one. And so, and my mom scheduled our, our days to like the nanosecond in that, like she picked us up from high school and we got so many speeding tickets. My mom is a lovely woman, but she drives real fast. And, and so there was this day that, um, I, I climbed into the van. My mom picked us up and Robert Berry's younger sister, Erin, climbed into our van thinking that it was her van. She had curly red hair, just like my younger sister, Emily. And we peeled out of the parking lot and Erin was literally in the back of our van. And we were on the highway before we realized that it was Erin in the back of our van and not my younger sister, Emily. And we had that situation that we only had two options. Either we could throw her out the window while on the highway and kill her, or we could go back and drop her off at the high school. Uh, my mom was furious because it made us late for everything else for the rest of the day. But obviously, we only had that one option. Like, we weren't just going to, like, kidnap Erin and adopt her into her family. And so it's interesting, that analogy, because that, like, literally played out in many ways. We didn't have a yacht. Um, I doubt that there's very many people in the pro-life movement who will ever have yachts um, for obvious reasons. However, um, I love the analogy because it's a very real analogy, especially for me, because that literally happened to me. Um, I love one that. Of the, that is a fabulous story. <laughs> yeah. Well, one other thing that I often think of that I share to people, and I'm curious in your thoughts as to whether you see it um, being a consistent analogy. What I'll often talk to people about is like, I have a three-year-old daughter and a six-month-old son. And imagine that I hired you, Emily, to babysit my three-year-old daughter. 
I hired you, like we explained everything, how to put her to bed, all that kind of stuff. And my wife and I go out for dinner and you give me a call saying like, Cam, your daughter is insane. I cannot do this anymore. Um, you need to get me out of here. Like it'd be a huge jerk move for me to be like, no, sorry, Emily, we, we paid you for three, um, three hours, have fun with my daughter screaming her face off and like whacking you with all of her toys and all that kind of stuff. Like there's a, a jerk move component, but at the end of the day, you are responsible for my child until somebody else can assume responsibility. And like, maybe my wife and I cut our dinner short and we come home early and we relieve you of your duties so that you are no longer responsible for my daughter. But you are obviously the, what we were talking about in the pro-life movement as the de facto guardian, you are responsible for my child until somebody else can assume responsibility. And you've only got two options. You've only got the option to either help or harm. You don't have the option of just like, yeah, sky beaming my daughter into our um, into our restaurant. I don't know. What do you think of that? Uh, do you see their parallels in there? Pros, cons? What, what do you think of that kind of analogy? Absolutely. I think the de facto guardian idea, another way I call it is the obligation to help approach is valuable. Um, but I'll be honest, I don't use it in a lot of my conversations with pro-choice people. I use it when I'm doing full out philosophy lectures on college campuses. I typically talk through the de facto guardian information and then I go talk about the obligation to not kill because I think that the obligation to not kill is the more fundamental problem with abortion. I do think there's an element to which you have an obligation to help this child. You have an obligation to minimally provide food and shelter until someone else can, is how I typically say. I don't think that I, in the situation babysitting your absolutely terroristic three-year-old, uh, means that I have to love your three-year-old. I don't need to educate your three-year-old. I don't need to donate my kidney to your three-year-old. I do minimally have to provide food and shelter I just have to like keep her alive until someone else can, whether that's you or the police or whoever, like I just have to provide food and shelter someone else can. So I do think I have an obligation to help. That is true. But there is a more fundamental problem, which is that abortion is not just refusing to help. Like if there was a way for me to refuse to help your three-year-old, like that would be, I guess, better in some sense than the alternative of me killing your three-year-old. Like maybe, maybe there's a world in which I have the right to refuse to help your three-year-old and just kind of abandon her. What I definitely don't have the right to do is take a machete and dismember your three-year-old. Definitely can't do that. <laughs> and that's what's happening in an abortion. An abortion is not a refusal to help. It is a direct killing. So I do think an obligation to help exists. But I think there's a more fundamental underneath problem with abortion is that it is a killing action. And so when I am in a conversation with a pro-choice person, I am typically going to go straight to that more fundamental problem because in this case, we're pretty deep in philosophy land when we talk about obligations to help or kill. What is helping? What is not helping? Is there a relevant difference between not helping and killing? Like we could get really in the weeds here. And I've found that most people have an easier time understanding the obligations to not kill because it exists like very obviously in the rest of society than they do having, a, uh, having the ability to understand the obligation to help. So if I can do both, I typically do them in that order. I go obligation to help and then obligation to not kill. But if I'm in a shorter period of time, like this podcast, for example, like I'll typically go directly to that obligation to not kill because I think it's a more fundamental issue. Love it. Love it. And, and absolutely agree as well. And, and I think that, that really resonates 
people, excuse me, um, for the, the same reason as we talked about in the, the personal sovereignty or bodily sovereignty of, of going towards like what is abortion and the intentionality in the level three, level four. I think that that really helps clarify things, people's minds that this isn't just an abstract denial of like, in theory, somebody gets hooked up to me, but rather like this is a very real and we have to maintain this principle for any semblance, semblance of a functioning society that, yeah, whether we have a Good Samaritans Act or not, you certainly cannot intentionally perform acts of um, injury or death towards other innocent people, all that kind of stuff. So bang on, I absolutely love it. We're going to drop in the show notes below um, the link to the the ERI um, bodily rights um, content as well. Anything else come to mind when it comes to having these conversations with abortion advocates around bodily autonomy? We've gone through a lot of the like the background info. We've gone through the the personal sovereignty. We've gone through um, the the self sacrifice kind of idea as well. Anything else that springs to mind that we should be thinking about? Make sure that as you're having conversations with pro-choice people, especially about bodily autonomy, that you are taking their concerns very seriously. I think sometimes pro-life people, when they respond to bodily autonomy arguments, can come across like they don't think bodily autonomy is important. And you need to be very careful not to do that because bodily autonomy is important. Every pro-life person I've ever talked to thinks bodily autonomy is important. And you need to be not afraid to express that to take a few minutes and talk about the common ground with you have with them about like how important bodily autonomy is. You think it's one of the most important rights we have. You don't want the government controlling your body. You think that consent to sex is really important. Like be willing to take a minute and talk about the fact that bodily autonomy is super important. And when it's being violated, that is a serious thing. But you do think bodily autonomy has limits. Ultimately, what the pro-life physician says is that your bodily autonomy, while extremely important, does not give you the right to kill an innocent person. I would say that is just about the only thing that bodily autonomy doesn't give you right the right to do. Like, I think bodily autonomy is one of the most important rights, but it's not absolute. Most rights are not absolute. They don't, like, mean you can do literally anything. Uh, and there's this one caveat. You have the right to bodily autonomy, but you don't have the right to kill another person. That's, like, where your right to your body ends. But that doesn't mean that you don't have any rights to your body at all. And I know pro-life people don't mean that but they often come across like they do if they either jump too quickly to respond, they don't take a minute to point out that common ground, or even if they push really, really hard on the idea that like, you don't have a right to do that. It can make it sound like you don't have a right to do anything. And that's not what you mean. You think bodily autonomy is important. It just doesn't give the right to kill. Absolutely. And and I love, I, I don't know if you've done this and I know there's a little bit of a, a can of worms, but I'm not a little bit of a can of worms, a gigantic can of worms. I'm going to crack right now. Uh, what I've been doing while, while I give trainings in pro-life audiences is obviously dealing with the fiasco over the last three years. So like, if you want to talk about how pro-lifers um, and conservatives care about bodily autonomy, let's talk about COVID and how much misery we all went through when the government told us what we could and couldn't do to the point of the government telling us what we had to put into our bodies. Like, like, and I'll say, like, like, we all get that other people telling us what we can and can't do um, is not cool. And we don't like it any more than anybody else does. And regardless of where you're at on vax mandates or masking or anything like that, we could probably all agree that if you test positive for COVID, you shouldn't go around licking people. Like, like there's a limitation to your bodily autonomy. I mean, generally speaking, you shouldn't go around licking people anyways. But especially Fair, if you have point. COVID, um, 
those are limitations and whether the government can compel you to do any of these other crazy things not to get into the weeds on that but like if ever you wonder whether or not bodily autonomy is important, consider what we just went through over the last three years. And I'm sure most people in your audience, most people themselves will be able to appreciate bodily autonomy is vitally important. And like you said, it is so important that there's only a very small range of things that can limit our bodily autonomy. Um, it's obviously, I hope that it goes on saying I'm not endorsing all of the stuff the government did through COVID, obviously. Um, but I think that it's relevant to talk about how you know what, there, there are limitations to our bodily autonomy, particularly when those and, and those limitations are simply not directly and intentionally slaughtering other human beings or directly and intentionally maiming and torturing and, and hurting other people that intent, the, the severity, the magnitude, all that kind of stuff. I, I agree entirely that pro-lifers have to have a deep appreciation for just how important bodily autonomy truly is. Yes, I have found COVID to be really helpful, actually, to bring up. Um, so I'm I'm with you on like opening that can of worms is a good idea, um, especially when I talk to pro-choice people. I find it interesting you've brought it up in talking to pro-life people doing training. I'll bring it up when I'm talking to pro-choice people as another example of a time because just, you know, statistically speaking, if a person is pro-choice, it is more likely that they were pro some of the mandates from the government. And so it can be helpful to point out to them that they, they too believe bodily autonomy is important, but they thought that there was a limit to that. And if I kind of put their position in the best possible light, essentially they're saying your bodily autonomy is really important, but it can be restricted or something can be required of you by the government as soon as your choices might be affecting someone else's life or health. Like if you could potentially give someone COVID by your refusal to wear a mask or get a vaccine, like that means that you no longer have complete rights over your body. We can do that because now your things are affecting someone else. And a pro-life person, I think it is possible, like from a logical standpoint, for them to believe either way on mask or vaccine mandates. Like if I if I use the, the pro-choice understanding and then I'll bring it to the pro-life side, let's say, okay, you have a right to your bodily autonomy, but it has a limit. And the question is, where exactly does that limit lie? It is perfectly possible to be a pro-life person who's pro-mask and pro-vaccine mandates from the perspective of they agree that as soon as it starts affecting another person in any way, life, health, I could potentially get them sick, then the government has a right to restrict it. And abortion's like way over here on this spectrum where like an actual person's being killed directly. It's possible to be logically consistent as a pro-life person who's also pro-mask and pro-vaccine mandate. It's also possible to be a pro-life person person who is not pro-mask and pro-vaccine mandate, because you might say that this is too early on on the spectrum of things. Like you shouldn't be allowed to restrict my body if I am just potentially going to get another person sick. Like that's not enough to justify it, but directly killing, huh? That's, that's another ball game. And so that's where the line needs to be. We can have a fun debate all day long. And I enjoy doing that, talking to purchase people back and forth. Like where should that line be? But the interesting thing is that everyone seems to recognize the line exists, whether you're pro-life and pro-mask vaccine, pro-life and anti-mask and vaccine, or pro-choice and pro-mask and vaccine. Everybody recognizes there is a line somewhere on the bodily autonomy spectrum where when your actions start affecting someone else, 
we need to have restrictions. You don't actually have the right to do anything you want with your body. And so bringing up COVID in a really calm way, I have found to be helpful to pro-choice people to at least be able to track with like, everybody's on the same page about that. Okay, now where should the line actually fall? And we don't have to decide about COVID. That's like over, at least for these purposes. Like we're talking about abortion here, but they can at least like track with pro-life people's positions and maybe why pro-life people thought different things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of that and, and great coverage. And and yeah, I've seen it be useful in conversation, but if it's not going to be useful, if it's not going to be useful for you, if it's not going to be useful for the person you're talking to, again, like we've talked about through this whole show, the arguments that you're making, the uh, conversations, the, the language that you're using has to be for the sake of what's going to resonate with them. Because at the end of the yes. day, we do this not for our own sake, not even arguably for their sake, though their sake is higher than our sake. It's for the preborn children, right? At the end of the day, we talk to people about abortion to save preborn babies, and they are the necessary link between you and the preborn baby. You have to win people, not just arguments. And so find what is going to work for the person you're talking to to draw them into the pro-life worldview. Again, remember the roadmap, getting people to talk about humanity and personality is where you want to go. You don't want to get um, stuck um, constantly talking about the justifications, even really important justifications like bodily autonomy. That's an absolute banger. Um, Emily, we, we could talk all afternoon. I, I think I mean, this is fantastic. I, one day I'm going to do a trip down and visit all of you guys at Equal Rights Institute. I would we absolutely would love, love that. That. <laughs> um, that would be awesome. But between, <laughs> between now and then, um, and before the next time we have you on the show, um, what else do people need to know about Equal Rights Institute? I love getting emails, talking about all the different events and speaking um, engagements that you have. How do people learn more about um, you, Equal Rights Institute? Where do they find you on socials and all that kind of stuff? So equalrightsinstitute.com is going to be the main place you want to go, and it will have links to everything else you could ever want. You can find us at Equal Rights Institute on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on, on TikTok, and we have a giant YouTube channel. I am the face of our social medias, and so if you are looking for me, just search for Equal Rights Institute because it is me. You will see reels of me every single day <laughs> appealing on Instagram, for example. Um, and if you go to the Equal Rights Institute website, I highly encourage you to subscribe to our email list. This is not one of the those email lists where we email you every other day asking you for money. I am on those email lists too, and they annoy me to no end. That is not what this is. What our email list is, is once a week, we send out a practical new pro-life argument or tip tool you can use in conversations. And those come in the form of new publications through our podcast, the Equipped for Life podcast, along with new videos, new blogs that we've put out. We'll also send about where we're doing events. So if you're in the area and you can come hear one of us speak live, you'll get to know that that is happening. So I highly encourage people our email list is extremely popular because we try to make it so practical for people so find us on social subscribe to our email list and just check out our website where you can find out the links like if you don't want to go search for all of those different things everything is in one place on the website and you get the link to the youtube channel link to our course link to instagram whatever that is you can find it there beauty that'll all be in the show notes check it out folks it is well worth your follow well worth your um, engagement um emily Thanks, Don. It's been an absolute ride. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Cam. This has been absolutely delightful. All right, folks. Just another gem coming from the Equal Rights Institute. Love working with them. Love the nuance that they put into their conversations. And in many ways, it dovetails perfectly with the way that we're trying to have conversations at CCBR as well. I've talked before, and I'll drop in the, sh in the show notes below, um, an episode that I did for the roadmap for how to have effective pro-life conversations, where we start by talking about the justification, we build common ground, we make an analogy, we ask a question to get us towards talking about the humanity of preborn children. 
From there, we go through the human rights argument, four questions that guide us towards an acceptance that this is a living member of the human family, that all living humans deserve human rights. For some, that's going to get them all the way to the pro-life worldview. For others, you might have to talk about, as Emily and I talked about, the personhood component of sure, technically speaking, they're living members of the human species, but not all living humans actually deserve human rights, getting into those kind of conversations. So I'll drop that link um, in the show notes below for how you can have the complete context. But by way of summary, Here's where we're getting that. Regardless of whether we're talking about the total body sovereignty or whether we're talking about the right to refuse arguments, the first thing that we're going to do is build common ground by empathizing with the reality and the importance of bodily autonomy. We all agree on it. Like we talked about at the end of the episode there, bodily autonomy is incredibly important. Regardless of who you are, where you're at in life, being able to make decisions about your life are vitally important. From there, we want to make an analogy and we can go through those four stages that um, Emily talked about for the um, for the total um, body sovereignty argument. Or we go through the analogy. I, I would um, endorse um, either the yacht or the van. Talk about that. Talk about a babysitting um, right to refuse there as well. Make an analogy trotting out the toddler. She used the four-year-old in um, the... In the yacht example, I almost always go with a two-year-old just because I'm I'm way into that alliteration vibe, but I uh, bang on for the, the four-year-old. Um, trot out the toddler, make an analogy that demonstrates the principle that they're getting at and ask that question. If not, in this scenario, why for preborn children? If not, if we go to the to- total body sovereignty, if we can't use um, thalidomide, um, whether it's intentionally or even unintentionally, then why can we literally rip the arms and legs off of a preborn child? What's the difference? Let's talk about the humanity. As Emily got into, almost always those conversations are going to pivot towards, but it's different. It's just a fetus. It's just a clump of cells. It's just an embryo, whatever. They're not conscious. Whatever it may be, that's where you want it to go. That's progression along um, the roadmap towards a conversation about the humanity of the preborn getting into the personhood of preborn children and how all humans deserve human rights, not it should be based on some kind of um, earning protection or anything like that. And so huge thank you to Emily um, and the fine folks over at Equal Rights Institute for joining me today. Um, please do check out their stuff, all of their, their infos in the show notes below. And please do follow along with opportunities that you have to get plugged in with the pro-life guys with CCBR. Um, Last week, we shared the episode from our Winnipeg um, high school boot camp, which was an amazing time. 23 young people um, learning how to have good conversations about abortion. And that's not just in Winnipeg. Kids in Winnipeg are wonderful. If you want myself and my colleagues to come to your youth group, your young adults group, your um, senior citizens group, whatever group that, that you're affiliated with, I would love to, to work through how we can make that happen. We're going to have a ton of different tour stops over the summer um, with our internship teams. We're going to be bringing a team of between 20 and 30 people um, to Regina, to um, Vancouver Island, to the lower mainland in BC, um, to Edmonton, to Lethbridge, to the Okanagan, all over the place. Our Eastern colleagues out of our Toronto office are going to be going all the way to the, um, the Maritimes, um, even sending a, a team of speakers up into Newfoundland. So wherever you are in Canada, Heads up. If you're not in Canada, but you're thrilled by um, the, the info that you're hearing, I'm working with a group in New Zealand right now, literally offering some training. I'll be joining a, a Zoom call at one o'clock in the morning, my time on May 1st, um, to equip a bunch of pro-lifers in New Zealand um, for their upcoming pro-life engagement and outreach. And so 
wherever you're out in the world, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'll drop in the show notes below how you can get in touch with me um, and how you can line up some good quality pro-life training. So thanks a ton for, for sticking it uh, with me. I know this is a, a significantly longer episode than many of our other ones, but I hope that you found as much value in it as I did. And may God bless you abundantly wherever you're at, however many hours are left in your day.